Welcome to episode 214 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. Joining us for our news roundup uh, episode uh, is Jim Lewis, uh, honorary lawyer and uh, senior vice president of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Paul Rosenzweig, founder of Red Branch Consulting, a former um, Deputy Assistant Secretary for Policy at DHS, uh, uh, and Stuart Baker, your host, uh, formerly with NSA and DHS. Uh, and I'm not going to say what I hold the record for. You're going to have to listen to a back episode to find out. Uh, what, why don't we jump right in? A uh, lot of interest during the week uh, in uh, encryption and uh, law enforcement access. The reason for that is a long and surprisingly calm article by Steve Levy in the New York Times about Ray Ozzie, who came up with Lotus Notes, uh, is uh, a very wealthy inventor, very well-regarded inventor, worked at Microsoft for many years as, uh, I think, chief uh, uh, platform uh, uh, engineer, um, and he has he has responded to the egregious um, uh, arrogance of Silicon Valley, saying uh, it's not possible uh, to give law enforcement access because. It's just math, and if you think that uh, um, uh, law, uh, law enforcement should have access and that uh, Silicon Valley should find a solution, you're basically asking people to nerd harder, and that's stupid because this is nerding on a problem that can't be solved. And uh, Ray Ozzie said, actually, I think this problem can be solved, uh, and he's come up with a mechanism for essentially tying law enforcement access to the update systems that uh, uh, companies use to update phones with their law enforcement, uh, with their uh, regular uh, uh, updated software. Paul, I, I, I see there's a lot of uh, commentary on that. What's your take on this? Well, you know, first let's, let's dispose of the it's just nerding harder thing. The, uh, it is true that math is math, right? You know, you know, one plus one equals two, and it always will, unless you're in some other universe. And uh, and so there there is a reality to the sense from Silicon Valley that uh, enabling lawful access uh, requires uh, employing some form of uh, encryption that has a a backdoor or a lawful access. But, that, but that's never been the real question. The real question has always been whether or not um, that uh, providing that lawful access uh, provides too much insecurity such that no reasonable person would want to do it, uh, it because it would put you and I more at risk than the benefits we gain from law enforcement, or whether or not you could devise a system of uh, essentially very, very sophisticated key escrow and key protection that uh, would minimize the risk of, of wholesale failures and maximize the utility to law enforcement. Um, for me, that's always been an empirical question, right? I mean, that needs to be tested with actual engineering. And what Rayazi has rightly pointed out is that uh, large tech companies are very successful so far in at least one form of that sort of key escrow. I'm using 
air quotes around key escrow, which is uh, maintaining the security of their update platforms such that they are not uh, uh, hackable by outside groups, such as uh, that method of routine access to your and my operating systems, whether we're using Android or Apple, is not wholesale subverted by uh, Russian cyber criminals who are stealing data off our phones or the NSA. Yeah. Uh, whether it works or not, uh, I don't know. It w- uh, But the concept certainly is a plausible one, and I would think that the right answer now would be uh, let's test it. Yeah. In a small test bed. I think see if it's I, scalable, see right. if it works, and, and move on from there. Yeah, yeah, you are right. What this has done is it has essentially taken off the table the argument, which was always kind of dumb, that this is this is not a, a debatable topic. There is no possible uh, way to accommodate law enforcement uh, uh, and uh, uh, people who um, want to do that are the modern-day equivalent of flat earthers. Uh, it turns out <clears throat> that the very people who were telling us that it couldn't be done were doing it uh, for their own purposes, for their own security, for their own commercial interests. Uh, Tim Cook, talking about you. Uh, and um, now we uh, see with Ozzy's uh, uh, proposal that law enforcement could take advantage of a very similar uh, uh, solution. There's one clever feature that I I was struck by in the uh, uh, system, which is that it's a one-time only access system because built into the system is a... um, Circuit that blows, blows, blows when, the chip, and you uh, can't change it when, anymore. When, when you get get access, it makes the phone either unusable or at least uh, alerts the user that the phone should be unusable. Uh, there's a variety of ways you can do that, and uh, that is a clever addition to this process because it provides for an additional uh, layer of security to prevent misuse of the and, tool. And also transparency, right? The phone right. self-evidently becomes unused, so it's not. it cannot be the case that I am unaware that somebody has gotten access to my phone. That, that, that's, that said, you, you can imagine there will be ways of spoofing that into blowing itself for users and it will become an avenue of, of attack. Exactly why the whole thing needs to be put in a test bed and run, you know, for a while to see if the spoofing is too too easy or too hard. Okay. Um, ZTE has said kind of vaguely uh, that it uh, it will be taking certain actions in response to the uh, U.S. Uh, uh, announcement that uh, U.S. government announcement that. U.S. companies may not do business with uh, ZTE. Uh, that probably means a lawsuit, but they haven't quite said that. Um, I thought the more interesting thing, and Jim, I may ask you about this, is there's at least one story I've seen suggesting that Huawei has been working on an Android operating system that is completely independent of anything that Google does. Uh, and since Google may not be able to provide its Android software to ZTE for its phones, which would essentially put ZTE out of the phone business. Uh, there is now a possibility that we will see uh, the beginnings of what you've predicted in the past, which is that China will build an entire ecosystem that cannot be reached by U.S. sanctions. No, that's the goal. And I think the unintentionally the ZTE action pushes the Chinese in that direction. Huawei's pretty far along. 
the Chinese government isn't going to let ZTE go out of business, so they'll, they'll float the money. Um, you can pretty much buy everything you need now from Huawei, uh, again, thanks to both espionage and Chinese government subsidies. So, you know, all we're doing is helping to build our own competitors here. There, there were, there's probably a better way to do this. Yeah, uh, it's it's hard to know. The temptation as a bureaucrat is to come down hard on ZTE because they just violated all of the uh, expectations yeah. for uh, a, a, a regulated entity. But uh, if you come down so hard on them that the result is a transformation of the uh, technology ecosystem, maybe that wasn't the right answer. That's where we are. Yeah, that's where we are. And the, the Chinese have always fretted uh, about, um, you know, operating systems. They remember Red Flag and then Red Flag 2. Those were for computers and they were a bust. But with uh, uh, Android uh, and open source, I think they're going to actually make it work. Um, and, you know, have the benefit with the U.S. Android, Google tracks you uh, with the Chinese Android It'll be the PLA, but you should be happy. I mean, either way. <laughs> that depends on what the PLA is trying to sell me, huh? Uh, <laughs> I, I was just going to ask, yeah. don't you think they're going to change anyway? I mean, whether, whether or not we sanction ZTE, it isn't the arc of, of Chinese uh, telecom development that they're going to deploy their own Android system? Yeah, whether or not we do this, we may have accelerated it by, you know, six months or a year. But, you know, in the life cycle of, of technology, that's that's just one generation. I think that's probably true, uh, which suggests that uh, both the U.S. government and U.S. industry should be asking itself, how do you thrive in a world where uh, you have zero access to the Chinese market? Uh, and uh, what do you do about Chinese companies that dominate that market and then want to dominate yours as well? Uh, a tough, tough set of calls. Okay. Uh, well, this this should be fun. Uh, there are now um, competing in intelligence committee reports, ha uh, House Intelligence Committee majority and minority reports on the Russia collusion investigation, which the House Intelligence majority has said, yeah, we're done. Uh, and there wasn't any collusion. Uh, it, there was a lot of activity by Russia trying to put its hand on the Trump campaign's knee. There were a few uh, ill-advised actions on the part of Trump campaign officials suggesting a willingness to have that hand move further up, uh, but uh, nothing that amounts to true collusion. The report sort of has sunk without much of a trace, the minority report, which is scathing and says, we want this investigation to go on for a long time, and here are the things we'd like to look at, has gotten at least as much attention as the majority report. I read it. I actually thought the majority report was better than I expected from the press coverage. Uh, Paul, you look dubious. Well, tell me why you thought it was better before I, before I tell you why you're wrong. So it was... Sober, it acknowledged uh, that uh, many of the Trump campaign officials' responses to Russian uh, wooing were ill-advised. Uh, it was not 
a whitewash. It simply said, we don't see any evidence of collusion. And certainly, you know, if you're observing this from the uh, public, there has been nothing that would amount to collusion that has come across in the public sphere. So uh, it's a plausible conclusion. It is a plausible conclusion, but you never see anything that you don't look for. Um, you know, it, it is, uh, it is clearly the case that neither the Mueller investigation nor the evidence that we've seen in the House Intelligence Committee has conclusively established beyond a reasonable doubt, or even by, you know, clear and convincing evidence that there was affirmative collusion. On the other hand, um, it really does seem to me as though reaching that conclusion is blinking reality. Uh, I asked one of my pro-Trump friends the other day, what would he have done if the Russians had come to him and said, you know, we have dirt on your on your, your least favorite friend? He said, I'd probably call the FBI. And then the question is, okay, why did Don Jr. not? But there is a great deal of, uh, I mean, you kind of elided it when you said Trump campaign officials, not Trump campaign officials, his son and his campaign manager, right? This is not like, uh, it's not George Papadopoulos and, you know, three levels down, though he was at the table. But, yeah, so um, I, I think that the only fair conclusion is, is that this was prematurely short-circuited and it was a bit of a tendentious thing that was meant more for its political salience, which I agree with you, it has none of, um, than, uh, than it was for actually uncovering whatever it is that actually happened. Well, I will say, you know, past products from the committee that uh, Devin Nunes chairs have been a little bit in this mold. That is to say, they are apparently sober, they are apparently factual, and they are factually accurate. But you have to read the other side before you know how seriously to take them, because some of the conclusions that they point to without actually saying it don't turn out to be justified. Actually, that raises what is probably the biggest failure here, which is that there's another side. We have a tradition of a bipartisan or nonpartisan uh, intelligence committee oversight uh, that goes back uh, mostly to the founding of the uh, House and Senate oversight committees uh, that in general uh, has resulted in uh, nonpartisan reports. There have been many exceptions. Um, that sort of proved rule, the torture reports from yep. the last uh, administration being a notable example. But uh, it has now become the case that you would say of a certainty, without knowing anything about it, that whatever the Nunez committee reports is not going to be uh, something that the minority committee minority would agree with. That's a factual statement that is truly a depressing statement about the inadequacy of intelligence oversight today. It is. I, and and I, I will say that the other thing that uh, is perfectly sober and hard to disagree with is all of the language around the aggressive efforts by the Russians to interfere with the election and the need to punish that. Uh, that should have been uh, the sort of thing that both the majority and minority could agree on. Uh, and it's sort of unfortunate that they let their disagreements swamp the areas of agreement. Let me ask you one more question. Well, this, this isn't, yep. this isn't a, uh, an intelligence report. It's a political report, and that's why it was trotted out so early. 
I've been trying to figure out why would you do this? This is clearly a favor to the administration. The usual reason is you want a job, and so maybe that's what was going on. But, you know, there's no reason to come to this conclusion now um, before the investigations are complete. It's politically motivated, and that's part of why it's been dismissed. Well, you know, look, the, the investigations are complete. The intelligence committees have every right to investigate this and come to a conclusion and ideally a conclusion that is quicker because of the important political salience of this issue than the necessarily plodding approach of finding everybody who committed a crime and prosecuting them. So I'm not – I would not say it's illegitimate for either Intelligence Committee to investigate that uh, issue and to come to a conclusion, for God's sake, uh, when we are more, well more than halfway to the next election. I, I think the American people do need to know what actually one can know when looking at the classified intelligence as well as the unclassified stories that we've all heard. Uh, and on the bright side, they didn't mention yellow cake, so I am I am grateful for that. <laughs> ah, so uranium one is dead. Yeah, it's just you know they dodged that bullet. That's that's cool. So uh, thoughts about Clapper? Uh, there is a suggestion. There's a there's a fight between the majority and the minority over this. The majority says uh, that Clapper did talk to at least Jake Tapper of CNN about the famous uh, dossier uh, and that he changed his story. The, the minority reports that he didn't really change his story. He first said he didn't talk to uh, Tapper or anybody else about classified information and then it, uh, said, of course, I talked to the press about unclassified matters that had become public. I, I, I think this leaves open the question whether he helped to orchestrate uh, what I think was a shockingly unprofessional uh, act by the outgoing intelligence political leadership uh, designed to feed this story, to embarrass President Trump, to drive a wedge between him and the intelligence community that continues to this day. If you read the tweets that uh, John Brennan is putting out, they are the most intemperate things that anybody in public life is saying about the president. And it's hard to believe he didn't think those things in December of uh, 2016 when all of these leaks were occurring. Yeah, but some of it is not so not taking issue with what you said. We can do that later. Some okay. of it is I think that uh, Clapper and Brennan were frustrated with the uh, measured pace of the Obama administration and thinking how to respond to this. And, you know, and had they had another year or two in office, they, they might have actually done something. So I, I know that there was frustration within the people in the Obama administration outside of the White House looking at this, at the, the, the difficulty in, 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 in taking any action. So that's, that's at least part of it. And you can say, well, why was he doing that in January? You know, some of it was a sense that they were there was a real fear that this would end up being swept under the rug uh, when the new administration came in. Um, there you go. So, you know, it's not entirely an anti anti Trump thing. I, I, fair enough. Although trying to ensure that the people who come after you who have different views can't do can't act on those views 
is not always uh, an appropriate response. Uh, it's uh, uh, it's not much different from the thing that got Mike Flynn fired in which you're jumping the gun and saying, I'd like to be making a little policy because in three weeks I will have clear authority to make policy. Why don't I do a little body English policy now? But it's pretty common in Washington to try and do that. You never did it. And, you know, I guess the argument is you're lawyers. You can have this fight among yourselves. You know, so he's the DNI, and technically he could say, you know, I have the authority to talk about this subject. Whether it was a good idea or not is another matter, but he was in office. Flynn wasn't. And we all try and shape what the next team will do. They usually ignore it, but it's it's a Washington tradition. All right. Um, speaking of Washington traditions, uh, the NSA director, uh, Nakasone, uh, has gotten what NSA directors always get, a quick and uneventful confirmation. Uh, Jim, uh, what should we think of this? There are people who are saying, well, he's a perfectly nice man, but he's running an agency that scares the hell out of me. He should have had a rougher ride because of the acts of the agency. This is your line, Stuart. I should set it up for you because it's a softball. Um, these crazy charges from the privacy group. Do, does anyone believe in mass surveillance? Right. General Nakasone is a, a very reasonable fellow, fellow, but he's also got tremendous experience. He was Keith Alexander's chief of staff. He ran Project Ares uh, for uh, uh, Admiral um, Admiral Rogers. Uh, this is a great candidate, and you know if you want to, I'm one of the themes of this podcast is that, that that's why I was thinking during your encryption discussion is I hope they don't fix the encryption problem because then I won't get to hear these enjoyable squeals of rage from the privacy community. <laughs> um, he's, a, he's, a, he's there's no substance, and they're saying well. No one picked up on these charges, and that's because it's like, why didn't asking that the general, if he recommends we line our hats with aluminum foil? <laughs> so, uh, you know, back back in the day, uh, Secretary of State Stimson said, gentlemen, don't read each other's mail, right? And that yep. that attitude lasted him up until he became Secretary of War during World War II, and he started taking advantage of magic and, and the Enigma decrypts. Uh, if we're going to really press on this, then what the privacy advocates seem to want is to get rid of the NSA. Yeah. Uh, which is, you know, fine. And, but it comes with real consequences. Uh, I, that's a caricature, of course. They would say, no, no, I want it regulated and, and operated under law. And the suggestion that Nakasone will actually not do that is kind of, well, fatuous. Yeah. I, the, the, the one criticism I've heard that had some, uh, suggestion of uh, uh, substance was that a lot of his experience is with cyber command type activities as opposed to cyber espionage uh, activities and that uh, he may be more interested in the cyber command aspect of the job than cyber espionage. There is a great irony in this. I think NSA thought it was a terrific thing to combine these two uh, authorities and now the NSA civilian leadership is 
very much of a mixed view about this because they see that uh, it is giving the warriors a much bigger say in the kinds of activities we do in cyberspace, something that used to be entirely up to the leadership of NSA. Yeah, and I, I get I get that concern, but I don't think it's not a fair one. I mean, he certainly knows uh, the intel business. Um, he looks, he comes at it from a, a, a military perspective, sure, but he knows the intel business. They've got processes for balancing this. The NSA may not like that they, they have this military guy over them, but that's been true since the dawn of time. Um, I, I don't think that's going to be a real issue. Uh, his main problem will be managing the eventual split and what that looks like, and that will take some doing. Uh, I don't know if Cyber Command's ready to stand on its own. I think they would tell you they're close, but you still have all sorts of procedural and doctrinal stuff you'll have to go through to get two separate agencies that occupy almost the same turf. Yes, and I think you're going to have to make sure that the uh, director of NSA has four stars or is a civilian because there is a real tension between blowing the hell out of a particular cyber um, infrastructure and getting in and exploiting the hell out of it. Uh, And NSA does the latter. Cyber Command does the first. Uh, And if there's a debate about which you can do, because you can't do both, the four-star is always going to win if he's arguing against a three-star. And I'm not sure that's the right outcome. I don't want to take too long on this, but I, I agree with you probably civilian, but they have a process now to decide when to exploit, when to do something a little more active. And the process has been shared by Keith Alexander, Mike Rogers, and now Paul Nakasone. So we've had a general, a senior four-star making these decisions for, oh God, at least uh, uh, almost a decade. And it's worked out okay. I don't, I don't think anyone says they made the wrong decision. How you translate that into having two separate agencies where you still have the head of NSA chair the committee or will be the head of Cyber Command or will it be split? Yeah, those are problems down the road, but so far it's worked pretty well. All right. Well, Jim, I, I, I did want to make sure that you heard the squeals from the privacy community over something at least as dumb as their reluctance to see law enforcement have access to encrypted phones. Uh, and that is the use of DNA testing to find distant relatives of the East Area killer who was just a, a, a severely uh, a, a sadistic uh, rapist and killer who terrorized uh, San Francisco area for years and never got caught uh, and then 30 years later, finding a good DNA sample, they went to a, an open source uh, uh, DNA registry and found a distant relative of this guy and then tracked it back uh, through his all his family tree to identify suspects and ultimately collect a DNA sample from the suspect who's now been arrested. That sounds like a great answer. And... I just, I frankly, I don't even understand the privacy issue here. I, I, I'm at a loss as well. I, it's not even the killer's privacy, right? I mean, if he'd given his DNA to Ancestry.com and not understood that it might be used against him, I'd have a little bit of 
sympathy for him, not real right. sympathy, but, you know, it would come as a surprise. But this is the DNA of his third cousin 12 times removed or whatever it was. Who gave it away willingly. He said, yes, please share it. Yes. And, 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 and so he has, I mean, in the privacy organization's conception, the killer has a privacy right to prevent his distant relative from providing evidence that establishes that he is a murderer. Or because, uh, why? Well, I suppose that in the fervid imagination, that same distant relative might give up DNA to a medical company that would then use it to determine who not to insure, uh, because they're at a heightened risk of, uh, some strange and unusual disease. But of course uh, that's illegal now, so. Of course, yes, yeah, so, so to which the answer is, yeah, we, yeah, we ought to be, and we do prohibit the adverse consequences themselves, right. not the collection of the data in the first instance. It's, 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 so I, 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 I'm with you. This one really puzzles me. And to be this, fair, you haven't heard a, a lot of the biggies yeah. saying this. It's the small privacy this, guy. This is a movie you guys have seen before because you're walking along drinking a can of some beverage and you throw the can out and the police come and take it and take your DNA off that. That's, that's what I think they're really worried about is that you, what are the rules that govern collection here? Um, in this case, it sounds like there were rules, but it's not, it's more the direct thing of if, if you throw something out, and this is something I always wondered as a kid, if you throw something out, technically you don't own it anymore and you've given up your rights. So is that true when it has your DNA on it? Well, I mean, now that's a good question. And, and if that were the complaint, you might actually, uh, at least let me have some sympathy. I would certainly say that we should not be, for example, collecting everybody's DNA at birth and creating a national DNA registry, even though that would be effective. Um, you know, the Supreme Court did a case on that about, what, five, seven years ago, Maryland versus King, and said that you could collect from arrestees and convictees, but not from the general public. So, so that's actually your answer. And if if you're worried That's the about the question, they should have asked, I guess. Right. So. If you're, if That's you're what worried, they meant to say. <laughs> yeah. If you're worried about consequences, um, you know, all this talk about oh, this vast cone of suspicion that will fall on uh, everybody's third cousins. Um, the consequence of having suspicion fall on you is you give a DNA sample, which is like okay, right? That that uh, a a swab in my cheek for. Five seconds, and that's all that happens to me, unless I happen to be the killer. Uh, and then, you know, who cares? Uh, so I'm just astonished that uh, we can't today. In fact, the Congress probably should do this. It ought to be possible on the basis of pretty modest <laughs> suspicion, or even just having a good sample, to go to 23andMe and other uh, companies that have collected this stuff but are not making it publicly available and say, we want to know if you have a match, close or distant, for this uh, because we are pursuing a criminal investigation. We think this would be helpful to us. Okay, uh, let's clean up a couple of issues and then uh, uh, close. Um, I'm going to skip over uh, the uh, uh, Georgia uh, statute uh, uh, because um, it's either going to get signed or it isn't. Uh, Why don't we ask this question? This is something that I've been debating on Twitter. Debating is probably too strong a word. Uh, Oren Kerr noticed that Donald J. Trump 
had received a direct message on Donald J. Trump Jr. Donald J. Trump Jr. Sorry, please. I uh, had received a message on uh, a direct message on Twitter from WikiLeaks saying, "Hey, we found this opposition site that's going to be going up. It looks like it's a repurposed site. We guessed the password." Name of the site is uh, Putin Trump, and the password was oh, Putin Trump. Uh, and uh, check it out. And he says, and I checked it out, and it certainly seems to uh, have uh, the following sponsors. The question was, by checking it out, which is involved using this guest password to go on the site, did he violate the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act? And Oren Kerr, who, uh, whose word on these things is law, says, yes, it's a violation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. And it's he didn't quite go there, but I think it's hard to uh, avoid the conclusion that it's a felony. Uh, I have to say that legal analysis seems correct to me, but I don't think it really um, casts much credit on the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Uh, probably... Donald J. Trump Jr. looks better than the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act uh, doing this. Well, you know, first off, I think the analysis is almost indisputable, which is to say that the elements could be proven uh, based upon Donald Jr.'s confession. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and so, uh, so it, it does come down to a matter of prosecutorial discretion. I'm less taken with the argument that it shows the CFAA in a bad light. This is actually a pretty um, clear characterizable computer offense. You're getting access to my uh, system by stealing or guessing my password. That's kind of in the core of what we're trying to protect, right? It isn't, uh, as in some of the cases that are much more interesting, uh, like the Georgia case that you passed over, where the access is not protected and the question is whether or not there was an expectation of uh of, uh, of uh, privacy against uh, access. Here, the uh, privacy is manifest. Yes, it's manifest is stupid, but we don't want to go down the road of saying you only get your privacy if you come up with a really good password, not a bad password, because then you and I would lose. I, I, I completely agree with you that, and, and this is where Oren and I, uh, where Oren is misunderstanding my uh, criticism. It's not that I think there's a better statute out there somewhere that uh, we just haven't written. Uh, it's more that we've written a statute that in order to future-proof it uh, is incredibly vague. Don't do anything without authorization on a computer. Uh, and authorization isn't even defined. So Almost anything can be characterized, anything bad can be characterized as without authorization. And we have handed over to prosecutors the ability to say, uh, well, this is serious enough uh, unauthorized action to prosecute. I, you know, I, I, I agree that it's vague and I agree that the definition of without authorization is indefinite. That's why the whole uh, violation of terms of service argument is, is, right. a, is a silly one. But I think that it's really not um, persuasive to suggest that password protecting a site is not a clear and objective manifestation of the need for authorization. So, but let me ask you the, uh, to think about this from Donald J. Trump Jr.'s point of view. He gets a password from somebody. He doesn't know whether it's true or not, uh, and he logs on 
basically to see what the site has. Does he know it's not his? Yes, he knows it's not his. But then, 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 then that's pretty much enough, but, isn't you know, it? How Unless, many? Um, and does he know that? I mean, if I give my wife my password, that's a different thing, right? You say, "Honey, log on as me and check my email for me." But if WikiLeaks says to my wife, "Hey, we've got a guest password from your husband's webmail," she knows that yeah, he, that's not right. Uh, he he did. Yes, although this is a site that's presumably going public soon, I, I don't. I just think if you are not steeped in computer fraud and abuse law, you're not going to say I'm doing something wrong here. And that, that's that, that's 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 the Chuck Rob Eaton ain't cheating argument, right? You know? <laughs> Sorry, I kind of I kind of uh, like the CFAA. I can't. You know, do you have any examples of it being misused? And uh, like, it's clear enough. If you don't have permission, don't go on the website. And there's a degree of Schadenfreude here when it comes to Donald J. Trump Jr. And that's probably what's driving a lot of this. But it's, it, the law itself is actually very handy. I don't think it's a big problem. I think it is very handy as long as you have uh, prosecutors who exercise discretion to only go after good or you know, to only go after people who've really done something seriously wrong. But relying on prosecutorial discretion in the context of a special prosecutor where every single member of the office has given up his day job to see if he can find a crime that you committed is not, you know, the most comfortable uh, circumstance. Uh, but I, uh, we're going to have to close this off. I do have one thing for our, for our audience, and that is uh, I, I spent – uh, two minutes over on the weekend looking at our reviews and we get good reviews on uh, uh, places like uh, iTunes and the like a couple of people who think I'm opinionated and right wing um, and bark me down for that on account of it. <laughs> what do they expect right you know? uh, it, and uh, but I went to Stitcher, which is a very well-known podcast aggregator, and I looked at the uh, reviews for the Cyberlaw podcast. There are none. Surely somebody is listening to this right now on Stitcher Radio uh, and has access to their review section. So I'm going to look at this next week, and I hope by then we'll have a couple of reviews, um, which. May or may not uh, characterize uh, uh, this as right wing and opinionated, but hopefully give us five stars nonetheless. So uh, you have your assignment uh, if you are a Stitcher subscriber. Uh, and thanks uh, to Jim Lewis. Thanks to Paul Rosenzweig. Uh, uh, this has been episode 214 of the Cyberlaw Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. A Cyberlaw Podcast is still looking for a part-time intern. We're starting to see some applications, so get yours in soon. Just go to uh, steptoe.com slash careers, and uh, uh, we will um, uh, evaluate your application. Uh, if you want to send us uh, candidates for uh, interviews, Please send that to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. We're getting some good suggestions there. Uh, I don't know what we're going to do with people who suggest folks who've been on here already. Uh, I want to credit them for their initiative and usually their good taste, uh, but um, I'm not sure. We're going to have to find a second uh, place prize, uh, maybe two highly coveted Cyber Law Podcast mugs. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, if you're uh, – 
looking forward to future episodes. I have to say I'm sort of disappointed. Uh, we had uh, Mike Pompeo scheduled to be interviewed as the director of the CIA next week. But as you probably know, he's already not the director of the CIA. So uh, I'm going to have to go back and start all over again with the public affairs people at the Department of State to get him to talk about uh, international cyber law issues. But we will track him down. Uh, uh, Kirsten Nielsen, on the other hand, has said yes. So we'll be getting her on. Uh, also, Megan Stiffel from uh, 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 Public Knowledge. Uh, uh, so we, we are looking forward to offering you some great interviews in the future. We hope you'll join us as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.